So welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast, this new series of conversations with some of the key leaders and influencers uh, from across the vast UK infrastructure sector. My name is Anthony Oliver and I'm going to lead today's discussion. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about setting up major projects for success. Uh, When it comes to project delivery, the UK's track record is poor. Too often projects are delivered late, uh, cost more than expected, and crucially, they don't always deliver the promised outcomes or sufficient value for public investment. So to discuss this problem, uh, let me introduce my guest today, Michelle Dix. Michelle is well placed to offer a view, having spent many years spearheading projects for Transport for London, most recently leading plans for the now shelved Crossrail 2 scheme. Today she's a director of the Major Projects Association, uh, a non-exec on Crossrail International, a visiting professor at UCL and an ICE policy fellow. Michelle, welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. Thank you, Anthony. Nice to chat to you again. Okay, well, Michelle, perhaps I painted a pretty bleak picture of modern major uh, project delivery. Uh, So let's start by getting your thoughts on whether I'm right or simply being a bit glass half empty about the whole thing. I mean, how would you describe the current state of major project delivery in the UK? Well, I think I'd be a glass half full person on this because I think there are a number of things we have to recognise in the difficulty of delivering major projects and recognising that they're major projects because they are complex and they do take a long time by definition. Uh, They go through three stages, planning, development, and then delivery. Um, They they cost a lot of money and um, they take a long time largely because of their size and their complexity and, of course, the politics. Um, Those long timescales increase the risk of change in planning um, and in terms of project personnel. And those risks and changes have an impact on planning and on the development, which end up being longer than the delivery stage. Um, and we've seen that with HS1, Thameslink, Crossrail 1, all took longer to develop than they did to deliver. Um, but I think spending more time on the detail at the planning and development stage is the important thing. Even though they've taken a long time, I think it's really important that you do spend more time up front on working out exactly what you're supposed to be delivering. And you need to clearly set out the scope of what it is you're proposing to do. Quite often, Projects are supposedly over budget because the scope has changed. Managing that scope and acknowledging the impact of any changes on costs is important. But if you haven't specified your scope, even though it changes, it looks like an overspend. So you need to be really clear up front about what it is you're delivering for what. I also think that we need more political commitment to those schemes, to what's being proposed, and not let those schemes change and then any changes being blamed on the people failing to deliver according to time and cost. All of which sounds incredibly simple, Michelle, but it's a very, very complex environment. You know, and I know that Major Projects Association, for instance, you know, has been working hard to help the sector understand those very simple uh, points. I mean, do you think that uh, we're seeing progress in terms of um, embracing those simple things? I think we're seeing some progress i mean there's lots of lessons learned that we we are learning about it's whether or not we're able to apply them um i still think one of the biggest issues despite the excellent work that's done by the mpa the ipa the ice the association of project managers there's lots of good stuff out there you know project speed all these things that will enable us to do things quicker better faster whatever um but fundamentally if there's no commitment to something up front and everyone's bought into it, we're always going to see these, these problems occurred. So that's why I keep on going back to making sure that upfront planning and development is robust. But 
Another element of how we want to deliver projects better is to make sure the environment in which the, the client and the people who are helping them deliver, the consultants, the contractors, are actually able to work in a proper team way. Um, everyone talks about collaborative working, but, but it's got to be proper collaborative working where you all feel that you're working to a common purpose and you die in, you know, you, you've bought into it and it's not a contractually based relationship where I'm only going to do this because that's all I said I was going to do. Or, you know, I'm, I've done this, but you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't say that that was part of the job, so I'm not paying you. So you don't want those sort of relationships. You want good relationships between people if we're going to deliver better. So building on those, those uh, discussion about, about relationships, the recent major Projects Association annual conference uh, in January, we heard uh, about the need for project professionals to step out of these so-called echo chambers of repeating the same ideas, the same mistakes. I mean, is that concept of echo chambers that one you recognise from the project delivery uh, sector? It's not a word that I, or word, two words, echo chamber, <laughs> that, that I used, but I, I recognise the concept. I, I would call it groupthink, or uh, first I first heard about it in relation to the Bay of Pigs and the Cuba invasion uh, disaster, where people just all thought the same thing and no one sort of thought out of the box. Um, and I have experienced it in the sense that sort of like I've, I've worked most of my working life in a male-dominated environment. And when I have been on boards that have been largely men and me, I have felt that I'm saying something different, but everyone else says the same. And therefore, had there been, you know, others who may have thought the same as me, maybe I was just weird, but maybe if there was others who thought the same as me, there might be more chance of being able to persuade people to, to think beyond what the group thought. So what's your advice you know, to help project professionals to step out of those echo chambers? Then? I, th- I think basically in the first instance to ensure that you, you, if you, if you go and sort of discuss them, you're open-minded about what the solution is. Um, it's not, well, we did this before, so this is the answer. Obviously, experience is important, lessons learnt are important, but key to all of this is having a team around you that's got expertise in different areas. They may have different views. The more diverse that team is, the more likelihood that they will have different views. So surround yourself by a more diverse team. And I'm not talking about diverse just in terms of gender or ethnic background, diverse in terms of like professional background, different sorts of people working on different um, areas. And just different thinkers. Well, it is about getting new ideas, giving different thoughts into those projects. Can I, uh, can I just say, though, one, one thing I thought was really, really enlightening was at Matthew Sade's um, Prestige, MPA Prestige lecture, lecture last year, when he was talking about how Microsoft was turned around with um, the, the new CEO, Satya Nadella. It was because he changed Microsoft from a load of know-it-alls to a, to, to a load of learn-it-alls. And it's that open-mindedness and wanting to learn things, listen and learn, that's going to help us within the major projects um, delivery going forward. Because we've got new challenges, we need to be open to new ways to address those. Okay. Well, let's talk a bit more about you, Michelle. You started as a graduate civil engineer at the Greater London Council You moved before moving into consultancy as a board director eventually at Halcrow. Uh, but as I said earlier, you spent much of your career uh, recently at Transport for London, where, amongst other things, you rolled out the world-leading congestion charging and low-emission zone schemes and then became managing director responsible for planning the future transport needs of London. This is one of the most senior voices in the profession. What would you say has been your key to success in the projects you've worked on? I personally think I've been fortunate in my career because I've always been guided about doing things that I thought I would enjoy. I've chosen things that I thought, yep, 
that'd be fun. I want to do that. Despite the fact it might have not been a promotion, it might have been a sideways move or a downward move, uh, it's, I thought I would enjoy it. And I always believe that since you spend most of your waking day working, you have to enjoy it. Uh, if you're not, you're going to be quite miserable and you probably won't do as well as you'd wish to. So, so, so doing something you enjoy is really important. And that's been my philosophy in terms of jobs I've taken. Um, when I was at Halkrow, I was uh, working on Rocol, which was the government's road, road user charging options for London, to help determine a future mayor... Uh, how they could use those those road user charging powers to best effect in London. And I was the project director for that working uh, to the government. I love that. And we came up with a proposal in terms of what a future mayor could actually implement in London. And I was a board director at Halcrow at that time. And when the job for, uh, it, at the time it was an associate director for TfL was advertised to actually deliver the congestion charging scheme, I just wanted to do it. I thought, I want to do that. I want to sort of take all the ideas that we had and I want to make it happen. It was less pay. It was, in theory, a demotion. But it was the best thing I ever did because I, I loved every minute of it. It's a great success, despite what everyone else thought. And that's, as I say, been my philosophy. So to do things that you enjoy. Because when you were at TFO rolling out that congestion charging scheme, um, you spent your uh, career in a job share arrangement with uh, Malcolm Murray-Clark. And that enabled you to work, I suppose it enabled both of you to work part-time. I mean, how did that come about and you know, was it a success? I first met Malcolm when I was a graduate trainee, civil engineering trainee at the Greater London Council back in 1979. And Malcolm was the same and we were friends and we went through our careers sort of together. He went off to Westminster City Council after the GLC was abolished and I went to Halcrow. Um, and we both worked part-time when we both first had kids. And he had worked with me on Rocol. And we both wanted to do the congestion charging job and neither of us wanted to work full-time. So we pretended we were one person. We put in an application as though we were one person um, and applied. And we got it because we had all the skills that the job required. And um, it was pioneering at the time, because there are, I, don't, I don't know if there was another senior uh, job share like that, and certainly not one with a man and a woman. Um, but it, it worked really, really well, because it was a stressful job. There was a lot of slight criticism. There were lots of different topics uh, to cover. Um, the politics were, were interesting, um, but having somebody who was doing it with you, who understood exactly what the challenges were, uh, was really, really reassuring. Also having somebody, um, Malcolm and I were friends. Uh, we were both sort of transport people. Right. But we, we looked at things differently. So to have somebody you could bounce off your ideas, they might not agree with and they can challenge you, meant that what came out was better. And, and of course it... As a working arrangement, it was ahead of its time in many ways, as you say. Um, I mean, is infrastructure working hard enough now to encourage the best women and the best men uh, back into the sector or to stay in the sector? I mean, what more should be done to try to, uh, to get more of that? I, th I think the industry has made great inroads in changing uh, the diversity, um, particularly in attracting more women into the industry. The main thing, as you say, though, is once, you, once you've attracted them in, uh, is to retain them. And, and, and I think it, it's really important that the different ways of working, home working, hybrid working, et cetera, et cetera, are maintained in order that, that particularly women and other, you know, it might be your partner, your husband, your, your partner, 
child carers um, have those same sort of like uh, part-time opportunities, working at home opportunities, because during COVID we, we proved it would work. Um, and therefore, I think it's, it's important to maintain that. It's also important to ensure that the culture in which you've attracted women um, into is the right sort of culture. And you have to accept that some organisations need to change their culture. So it's not a macho culture. When I was first on the board, I, I said, why, why, why do we have to swear? No one needs to swear. I'd rather you didn't. And they didn't. They just stopped. Because it's just an unnecessary, it's not even an adjective, proper adjective, is it, half the time? It's just a waste of space sort of word. But sort of, um, it, they stopped. And it's just, it's just making sure the culture's changed so everyone's sort of like happier working together in that environment. And that you don't have your way days be things that only blokes want to do. So, so retaining them is really important. And I think that's why sort of like hybrid working, part-time working is essential for anyone who's got care responsibilities. Or, or other interests outside of work. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Um, this session, as I say, is called setting up setting up major projects for success. Um, I mean, your most recent role at TfL was leading the Crossrail Two project, uh, the proposed North South successor to Crossrail, the Elizabeth Line project. I mean, clearly post COVID, this project was shelved. But you know, what were you planning to do to avoid the problems that Crossrail uh, had getting over the finish line? How are you setting it up for success? Well, I think we're very lucky having Crossrail having gone before us because we had we had something right in front of us that was the same that we could learn all the lessons from. And we could learn the lessons from people directly, people who were doing it on the ground by having sessions with them to learn what worked, what didn't work. Um, I mean, one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that we learned from the outset was to ensure that in developing the scheme, that you're including people who are going to operate it as well as people who are interested in the land around it as well as people who are going to sort of like build it because that, that, that notion of understanding the operations is really, really important. But key was getting the right team to, to have all the skills that are required and ensure that people who are working on the project, all working collaboratively together was, was really, really important and all being enthused to want to work together. And we were guided by what we called three Ps. Um, there was like perseverance, patience, positivity. And then we had two more Ps that the team introduced, which were pizza and Prosecco, because it's really important that it's fun, that when you're working in that environment, it's fun. But it's learning all those lessons from the past, making sure that what we were proposing, we considered all the alternatives in terms of trying to meet the goals that we were given, the objectives, trying to achieve the outcomes. So being robust in all of those things up front and having a digital strategy from the start so you can digitise everything you've done. So when you get to the position that we got to with, with, with Crossrail um, 2 and we had to so like put it under a duvet to go to sleep for a little while and it's all there for someone else to pick up at some later stage. When I took over um, Crossrail 2, all we had was a metal rack with a couple of maps hanging on it. So if someone comes along now for Crossrail 2, there's all this, everything we've done, is in this portal. And do you think anyone will ever reach under the duvet to resurrect it? Yes, I do. Because all good things finally come about. Um, I tell this to lots of younger people because I was in the industry for sort of like 45 years and things I was working on at the GLC back in the 70s have since come to fruition. 
even though they might have been hanging around some time before that. I mean, congestion charging, so like considered at the beginning of the last century and numerous studies, eventually we got congestion charging in. The river crossings, Abercrombie came up with a river crossing um, in East London back in the 40s. We've got Silvertown Tunnel coming and we've got the famous cable car, the scheme that was delivered in two years and that was a success, um, despite what sceptics might, might think. Um, so all these things, you know, the opening up of Battersea Power Station, redeveloping that, they all eventually come to fruition if they're things worth doing. Well, I'm sure you'll be ready to step straight back in again when it does happen, Michelle. Um, let's talk about leadership. Um, it's constantly referred to as one of the critical success factors for major projects. Um, I mean, from your experience of, uh, of being uh, a leader in the sector, I mean, what would you say makes a great project leader in infrastructure? Uh, I, th- I think there have been great project leaders in the past. I think there are different sorts of great project leaders going forward. But all project leaders have to be team players. That They all have to be able to bring a team together around them that can work together, be able to challenge, you know, to actually, actually encourage people to, to question, to challenge, to have their say and, and to listen. But in terms of some of the work that we've been doing for the Major Projects Association, look at capabilities going forward. When we sort of had uh, various um, events to understand what people thought a great project leader should be, much more emphasis was placed on the softer skills. So it wasn't just someone who had knowledge and experience. It certainly wasn't the shoot from the hip hero leader that, that people wanted to see. Someone Someone who was obviously... Quick at assimilating information, you know, prepared to be curious enough to sort of find out about these things, but be quick in, in drawing stuff together to help give direction and, and common purpose. But, but emotional intelligence was a key thing that came up. People who are mindful of what other people thought and felt were inclusive and listened and were okay. learn it alls, not know it alls. Right. I mean, but you mentioned this macho culture. Uh, do, do you think? that the sector is becoming more or less attractive for the brightest, smartest young professionals to gravitate towards? I think I think the sector should be um, more attractive to young professionals because the problems that we have to uh, face, particularly in the major projects arena, are much more complex and the skills required are much more diverse. So um, most of what we do is part of a system and we're required to think wider than the little bit of infrastructure that we're putting in place. But I think in terms of some of the skill sets that are required going forward, particularly the digital skills and the data skills, our challenge will be to ensure we can attract them with pay. (laughs) If we're competing with gaming industries, how can you make sure the environment they come into, the opportunity for them to influence what's going on is actually listened to and heard? So I I I think there's a great future for major projects but we want to get those young people with those particular digital skills um, certainly coming in. I, I do want to say just one thing that I forgot to say before, particularly about women, which was one thing I am involved in, is trying to encourage more women to become fellows of the ICE because it's a recognition of, of, of your, your, you know, your achievements in terms of uh, supporting and working within the industry. Only about 5% of the current fellows are women, even though there are so like 15% of the, um, the members that are women. So there's, there's, a, there's a campaign to try and get more women into fellowship. 
So if anyone's listening to this and they want to know how, just contact me or Rachel Skinner, who's the ex-president, or Jenny Green, who is the um, the ICE representative. That's a little plug. Great stuff. I will do that. Um, so sum it up for me, Michelle. I mean, what is your top tip uh, or your top tips to ensure that any project is set up for success? Uh, I think I think a top tip is to make sure you've got uh, buy-in to actually take that project forward. You've got cross-party buy-in, particularly because most of these major projects are government. You've got cross-party buy-in and you've got a commitment to deliver whatever it is you've come up with. And you will get that commitment. You've done that robust work up front. Having explored all the options, having done sort of like meaningful engagement, you've got people bought into it. You then want cross-party buy-in to stick to it. Great. Well, let's hope everybody sticks to that advice. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your views. Really interesting conversation. Uh, well, I hope we will see you back on Crossrail 2 when it starts being rolled out. Michelle, thank you very much for joining thank me. Thank you. It's lovely, lovely to chat as ever. <laughs> Thanks again. That's all we've got time for today, but we will have more from the Infrastructure Podcast in the pipeline and more guests to talk to as we continue to probe the big issues faced across the sector. And if you haven't done so already, do check out the new Infrastructure Podcast website, uh, www.infrastructure-podcast.com, where you'll find background information and all the latest podcasts to listen to and to share. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks again to Michelle. I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Mm